Welcome to The Intuitive Therapist with Janice R. Cohen, therapist, clairvoyant, empath, and medium. Listen in as she takes a no-nonsense, deep dive into real human struggles and how to resolve them. Janice will share channeled information from her spirit guide team, as well as angels and archangels, to help you master your emotional, physical, financial, and spiritual destiny. And now, Janice R. Cohen. Hey, y'all. This is Janice Cohen, the intuitive therapist here on the Intuitive Therapist Podcast. So happy y'all are with me for another phenomenal uh, episode with a phenomenal uh, guest I have today. I'll tell you what, one of the things that's, that is, has kind of been elusive, I feel like for me, uh, but also for a lot of people, is solving the riddle of addiction. Addiction, I know, is in my family. I'm kind of a, a kind of a recovering addict, but I guess guess really a recovering addict from smoking. And I know so many people who struggle with addiction. And I have a very very special guest on my show, uh, Chris Wallace. And I'll tell you a little bit about him. But I wanted to share with you. He he's going to really talk about an intuitive approach to substance abuse. And w- when I think about addiction, you know, I, I here's what I know. Any addict is going to tell you that just because you're sober, it doesn't mean you're not an addict anymore. Addiction really is a daily fight, and it's a fight that many lose repeatedly. What if there was really a methodology, an actual and effective process that could obliterate addiction? Wouldn't you want to learn about that? So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk to my amazing, impressive friend, renowned strategic interventionist coach. He's a he's you know, really been trained in behavioral sciences and, and the main streets of life. Uh, Chris Wallace, he, uh, he has an amazing uh, uh, company, so to speak. He is the advisor to men at advisortomen.com. And he helps people solve the real of addiction so they can use their power and service of themselves and those around them. And this really gives their life meaning and represents freedom. So he's going to give us some outstanding insights about addiction. Welcome, Chris. Happy to have you. Well, happy to be here, Janice, and I hope I live up to the billing, but uh, I'll <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it really is one of those intuitive, and I'm glad that you're called the intuitive therapist because this is really uh, an intuitive approach to addictions that many people have never heard before. So I hope your listeners like it. And um, yes, uh, I'm, I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, I'm so glad. I, I never thought about it uh, in terms of anything, even just having an intuitive approach. I'm, I'm excited to hear about what this, is, what this is all about. Well, I want you to tell them about you because you, you are really like one of the coolest people I've met. You and I connected through our coaching program. Uh, one of our trainings uh, programs, uh, strategic intervention, uh, in 2011. And so, besides that, tell people what you do, how you got into this, and how is it that you came upon this amazing approach to addiction? Well, you know, this is a funny thing that you ask. My greatest qualification when it comes to addiction is that I've been addicted to everything, you know, and uh, and overcome it myself personally. But I have a background in the behavioral science. I went to college. I went to university. Um, but, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I was out of the house. I came from a family of sort of uneven attachments and a fair bit of violence. And I was out of the house very early. And I spent a, 
oh, a decade and a half or so on the mean streets, sort of as a, you know, a drug dealer and a thug. And I carried a gun for a long time. And then I had a little boy one day and, and um, he was about two years old. And uh, I, I had just been shot through the chest and I was, I was lying on my couch and I had a, I, and I'd also been hit with a bat and I blocked the second blow. Anyways, I escaped and I, I lived. And uh, I had to stick a finger in the hole of my chest and uh, where the air was escaping, where I'd been shot and pinned up against a, a you know, a, a crack dealer's cupboard door in his kitchen with a, with a crossbow. And anyways, I, I survived and I was sitting at home thinking about how I was going to go back and whack this guy. And uh, I had a beautiful little two-year-old um, who was actually conceived on a visit in prison. Uh, come trundling across the floor and pull himself up onto my belly. And, um, you know, he turned himself around and he sat on his daddy's belly and he, and he watched TV and he stuck his thumb in his mouth or something. And I looked at this little boy and I, he had blonde hair and chubby cheeks. And, and I realized that he was the only person I knew that didn't have any enemies that he of all the people I knew in my life that this was the only little soul that wasn't operating based on fear or based on some kind of a deal with someone and, and suddenly it, something came over me I, I I guess it was I blinked and I, I realized that it was my job to protect them that nobody else could do that and I mean I was sitting there thinking about how I was going to go back and whack this guy who had shot me people knew I was coming the cops knew I'd come the rounders knew I'd come. I had a reputation. And, uh, and, uh, and I realized that I might get caught, but I was willing to do the time because it had to be done because I lived by that code. And, and I, I blinked and I said, well, geez, what happens to him? He's the only kid I know that doesn't have any enemies. What will happen to this little boy? And I knew that people would try to get after his mother. She was a good looking gal, but she had a coke habit. And, and uh, what would happen? He'd be shuffled aside. And somehow, it dawned on me, the universe spoke to me through this little boy, and, and, and I blinked, and I decided there and then that if all my life amounted to was to be a decent father to this little boy, then that's the way it was going to have to be. And the, the person who shot me was going to have to wait until another day to die. And so that's what I did as I got up and I, and I said, look at that's it. And I went out and I searched out drug treatments and I got myself and they wouldn't accept me because I was violent and I had this terrible record. And finally this little five foot one Dr. Ahmad said, look at this guy's never been given a shot. He's been asked for treatment a bunch of times. We'll let him in. And I never looked back. And, um, you know, two years later, the guy who shot me was killed in a pool hall. I went on to college and studied behavioral science, went to some university, and I raised this little boy. And I'll tell you, Janice, when he was 18 years old, you know, I'm a bit of a ball buster, kind of a street kind of guy, and uh, regardless of my background or whatever, and uh, my education, but I, I used to tease him. And I said to him, listen, gaffer, I called him the gaffer. I said, look, I, I've raised you now. You're 18. You can vote. You can drive. You can vote and get legally married. I said, I just want you to know that it's cost me, and I had read somewhere that it cost about 150 grand to, to raise a kid. And so I said, I just want you to know that the 150,000 I probably spent raising you were even. You don't owe me anything, you know. <laughs> and um, and I said, I said uh, anything I give you from now on 
will be based on moral persuasion. It'll be based on relationship, but it won't be based on because I owe you as a father anymore. Mm. I've done my job. I've brought you to adulthood. And, and from now on, we're on a different sort of footing between each other. And he looked at me puzzled, you know, and then he kind of had this wry smile and he's a bright kid and he's got a lot of empathy in him. And he said to me, he said, listen, dad, he said, everything, I, you know, mom brought me to school and she fed me and she, she, you know, she did a lot for me and, and, and I appreciate her, but everything I ever learned about life, everything I ever learned about people, everything I ever learned about myself, I learned that from you. Mm. And, and, and he, he reached over and he kissed me on both cheeks mm. and he said, thank you. I love you, dad. Wow. What and a story. Yeah. What and that, and, and that's what, and that's how I turned myself around was with that little boy. He was the, he was the impetus for me. He was the, yeah. the inspiration that I needed to kind of kick myself into a, to a higher level. Yeah. And so and I never looked back. And I've been, uh, you know, I've gone on. I was senior vice president of a company, a sales company, largest uh, subscription sales um, company in North America, headed out of Salt Lake City. I was the Canadian VP. I, you know, and I did fine for myself. And he's now sure. 35, living in Ireland. He just got married, and a great Wonderful. kid. Yeah. So and so how, it worked so out you, really well. You, you share your wisdom. I'm sorry to interrupt. You share your wisdom. Your hard-earned wisdom with the uh, the men that you work with, the people that you work with. I do, and I and I work with all kinds of men because I believe that a lot of our problems these days stem from um, from men's weakness. Uh, you know, men are a long time had a purpose that was sort of strong and 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 moral and and brave and courageous, but we've sort of lost our way in the last couple of generations. So mm -hmm. that's one of the things I do. I believe if a man can you know, harness and gather his power and use it in service of himself and the people around him, especially his family and then his community, that he will find a meaningful life through doing this. And that's mm. what sets him free. That's what sets him free from the tyranny of his existence. And so that's mm. what I help men do. And I have lots of ways. And addiction is one of it. But, you know, let's talk about addiction, because I think it's really one of those things that you know, you've got AA, you've got all of these different 30-day treatment programs, you've got long-term treatment, you've got the, the, the great associations both in Canada and in the States. And most of them focus on dopamine and the buzz that you get from drugs and, and that that's where the, that's what we're chasing all the time. And I, and I prefer to look at it a much, much differently, much, much different way. And I go back about it a different, let me just run it by you if you don't mind. You ready Absolutely. for it? Please You've do. been afraid before, I'm going to assume. Say it again? You've been afraid before. Uh, yeah. You've felt fear. You could be driving down the road and there's a wreck in front of you. Maybe it's foggy or it's rainy or it's snowy if it would be up here in Canada. And all of a sudden you got a wreck in front of you. And what happens is right away, as soon as we're in fear, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure rises, our breathing shallows. And if you're on the highway and you're in a fog or in a rainstorm or something like that, your thinking would narrow. It would narrow right down and you would find that one little spot between the cars where you could negotiate your car and avoid the wreck in front of you. And that's what fear does. It helps us escape from danger. You follow me so far? Absolutely. Now listen to this. When you smoke a cigarette, when you smoke a joint, when you have two or three beers, the first thing that happens is your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure rises. You see people who've drank for years and years and years in their nose and they get this rosacea around their 
because the capillaries around their face yeah. break uh, often and they, 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 you can tell they're long time drinkers because their blood pressure is high and if they're thinking they're they're breathing shallows as soon as you use drugs or alcohol that's exactly what happens and what lies at the crux of all addiction is a search to narrow focus you're trying to take many thoughts and turn them into fewer thoughts and that's what lies at all addiction it could be it's drugs alcohol it's it's overeating it's gambling it's porn it doesn't matter what it is at the crux of all addiction is a search to narrow thinking and so what happens you get a guy who goes to the bar on friday he's got his paycheck he's got his boss he's got his family at home maybe he's got clients maybe he's got bills he's got mortgages he's got all kinds of different things on his mind and he has two or three beers and before you know it all he's thinking about is pizza and pussy that's narrowing thinking hmm. now I, I don't mean to be crude but maybe he thinks of sports you know, so, so, and so that's, that's narrowing thinking. And that's what lies at all of us. Now, if you think of the best time in your life, you ever do something called, you ever get into something called what the, most people refer to it as the zone. Yeah. And this is where there's a kind of a confluence of your passions, something that you've learned that challenges you. And also it gives you, you're, you're usually 100% focused on it. And you get into one of these sort of zone periods in your life. And it could be talking to people. It could be sewing. It could be you're in your shop working on something. It could be during a sport. It could be while you're writing, you're reading, you're anything. It, something that puts you into that zone. But there's usually got to be a challenge involved, too, that helps you get better over time. And that zone is when we can actually, sometimes you'll notice, you'll say, well, seven hours later, where did the time go? Yes. <laughs> you know, all, all of a sudden, boom. Sure. Well, this is when we're at our happiest as human beings. When we're in that zone, we're in what what uh, Cement Mihai um, said was the flow. He wrote a famous book about this in 1990 called Flow. And this is where what what this is when human beings are at. And we can actually it's the only time that I know of that a human being can actually feel like they've stopped time, because all of a sudden you're in your zone. You're you're doing something that you're probably good at or you're getting better at you you're 100% focused on it it's it's engaged your passions and your strengths or your talents and all of a sudden time stops and that's what we're searching for because that's a narrowing of thinking that gives us this huge sort of benefit and it's what human beings seek of it's one of our happiest times and that's what people are seeking when they're when they're using drugs and alcohol they're trying to take lots of thoughts and turn them into fewer thoughts and they're searching for that zone but the problem with drugs and alcohol is that there's no complexity involved there's no challenge there's nothing gets better you don't build anything right you know you just do the same old same old so what you're doing is you're taking you're narrowing thinking and that works really, really well. But For a moment. You, yeah. The next day you wake up, same mm -hmm. problem. And, and here's what happens, Janice. So when people get into this thing and they get into this habit and they, and they narrow thinking this way, well, they don't narrow thinking the more adaptive ways, the more ways right. that are more compelling as human beings. And here's what goes on five or 10 or even 20 or 30 years will go by. And if they're lucky, one day they'll realize and look back and ask themselves, did I just live 20 years or have, have I lived a version of one year 20 times? Right. And that's the sad part about addiction. Mm -hmm. 
because you're a dog chasing its tail. You just never get better at anything. And so you live much, much small. And it's not what the universe ex you know, expected for you. It's not why the universe put you here. And so that's, that's the riddle of addiction, is that people are trying to narrow thinking. That's what lies at the crux of their, their, their habit. And, um, and, uh, and it's a maladaptive way of doing it. It works, but it doesn't work very sure. well. Sure, yeah, it works momentarily. So, yeah. so let me ask you, you know, uh, one addict to another, what do you, how do you help people uh, find freedom from addiction? How do you help them find that sweet spot that lasts? Because that's what I hear you say. It's a sweet spot. And I know what that sweet spot is. I love to write. I'm a writer in part. That's what I do. And, yeah. uh, and I, I, there have been times where I've sat down at my computer and uh, four or five hours later, I'm looking up and I'm like, whoa, where'd the, where'd the time go? So I, I, yeah. yeah, I get that. So how do you, in your work with, uh, with addicts, how do you help them? Well, there's more to it. And I'll tell you, if you're in a fear state, can you be in a confident state? No way. They're mutually exclusive emotions. Right. Now, you can parse this a little bit and say, well, you know, you get the guy who's the MMA fighter who's about to fight for the championship. Maybe he's scared shitless, but he's vacillating the same way, you know, a, a, a multitasker, you know, they, they're usually switching from task to task. Very few people can multitask. Well, the same way that happens emotionally, too, where you may be afraid. Now you're confident. Now you're afraid. Now you're courageous. Now you're afraid. Now you're courageous. So he's vacillating back and forth between those two well somebody who puts themselves in a physiological fear state and the body is where your soul lives the body is where feelings are inculcated and in, through pre previous experience a baby has very few feelings but as complexity um, arrives in its life well his feelings expand and they get more and more feelings because it's based on old experiences so Here's the thing. You can't be confident and fearful at the same time. So if you constantly put yourself into a fear state, and it doesn't matter if it's cigarettes, if it's, if it's um, uh, beer drinking every day, if you're smoking pot all the time, if you're you know, a hard liquor drinker, any of those things that put your body into a fear state over time your level of confidence has to go down. Mm. It'll slowly erode and you won't notice it, but slowly but surely your confidence goes. And what can happen over time is that it becomes something called learned helplessness. Yeah. And of course, Canada and the US being, you know, uh, socially responsible countries, we look after our poor and you have, you know, you have families that are second, third generation. They're still on what we call up here welfare or social assistance, and they just don't have the confidence that that belongs to somebody else. And there's usually substance substance abuse that's helping to keep them there because they're in a fear state all the time. And that's yeah. the way that they narrow focus, and it's the only way they do it, but they don't get anywhere because there's no complexity. There's nothing compelling that makes them try to get better every day, better every day, better every day, the way you, know, you would at writing. When you first started writing, Janice, you were, you know, probably not as good as you are now. Yeah. You know, it's something that you worked at and you got better. And over time you became, uh, you got to a you know, level of proficiency that where now you can just get right into it and stop time. I mean, I did that this afternoon. I started right. at 11 o'clock and all of a sudden, boom, 2.30 came and I didn't even realize it felt like I was writing for an hour, you know? Well, so, I'll tell you, I, I know for me, uh, when I smoked on and off for years, I mean, since I was 
golly, I hate to even share share how long, but I started smoking at 12 uh, and didn't stop till about really officially four years ago. Mm. And here's what I realized. It's so funny also because I thought for sure, uh, given that my father passed this year, I thought for sure that would be like a huge trigger for me that I would go back to smoking. And you know what? It didn't. Grief wasn't the trigger. What the trigger for me and for many, many people, and you tell me how you see this play out in your work, to me, it's without a doubt, exceptionally without a doubt, fear, but, and also <laughs> anxiety. When I felt that uh, my life, my emotions were out of control, boom, I'm smoking. It wasn't mm. grief. It wasn't fear for me. It was anxiety and maybe the fear of being out of control. And once I was able to um, understand that that was the trigger, then I could do some pre-work before so that I could set myself up to be emotionally ready to not use that substance as if it was placating my anxiety. And like you said, it pushes it away for a moment. And then you know what? You develop habits, whether it's good to, to go do it during a, uh, the commercials on the TV show or go outside instead of smoke inside, you know, go wash your hands, brush your teeth, do all these things to develop these routines and habits around your addiction. But really the piece that we're both talking about is uh, how do you master the emotion that is uh, fostering the behavior? And if you can do that, if you can conquer the fear, if you can get clear about what scares you about where you feel out of control, uh, then you can deal with your addiction. Well, I think you're right. And let me just talk about that for a second, because anxiety can be viewed as a, um, an, a, a general fear of the future. You know, when people have anxiety, they generally have a pile of woulda, shoulda, coulda thoughts coming into their mind and a whole right. pile of scenarios are playing out. And this is very much a fear state. So, you know, one of the ways that I find that I think people are susceptible because you'll notice, you know, there's some people that went to Vietnam, had a heroin habit when they were over there. When they came back, they gave up heroin and they never touched it again. But other people couldn't. Other people then, it became, you know, part of their life. And uh, it's the same thing with smoking. When you smoke, 45 people say, well, it relaxes me to have a cigarette. Well, what's happening is, you can't relax you because your heart rate just went up 15 beats a minute, you know, 45 seconds after you took the first haul on your cigarette. But what it did was it, it narrowed your thinking. Mm-hmm. It helped you take all of those thoughts. And yeah. because you put yourself into a mild fear state, you're now like that person on the highway who's just going to find that one little opening in between the car wrecks in front of you so that you can get by. You've narrowed your thinking so that you've, you're using fight or flight. You're using your HPA axis, your fear axis, to sort of narrow your thinking. And that's what you think or makes people believe that um, is relaxing them. So that's a kind of an important thing. Now, when you think of beer, the way I like to put it to people is that what they're doing is they're sipping fear and they're pissing out their confidence. And I know that's, that's not a great, it's not a great visual, but you know, any beer drinkers hitting the washroom steady, you know what I mean? So, so it's a nice way to put it is you're sipping fear, pissing out confidence, a dope smoker. What he's doing is he's, he's inhaling fear and he's exhaling his power as a man or as a woman, you know? So this is because your confidence is kind of important, Janice. 
you know, people say, well, confidence, do we need it? Well, yes. Confidence is the stuff that takes thoughts and turns them into actions. That's what confidence is. And you can only get confidence two ways. And they're both through action. One is by small little incremental improvements that we do every day that over time build up a general sense of confidence. But another way is by big leaps of faith. You know, the first time you stand up at a Toastmasters meeting and give a public speech in front of a room full of people and you don't die, the next day you're a changed person. Absolutely. If you give a, a cheers at a wedding and you don't shake to death in your boots, and the next day after that wedding, after that reception, you're a changed person. People are slapping you on the back and saying, hey, nice words. That was very nice. And Holy, now you're a different person. So that's a level of confidence that you get by taking. First time you go off a high diving board as a kid, you know, you're scared shitless of going up those 10 or 12 feet. But then all of a sudden you go up there and you get up and you mastered and you don't die. You didn't drown, you know. And so afterwards you're like, oh, my goodness, I can do it. And what do you want to do right away? Again. Right. Yeah, you want to do it again, for sure. Yeah, and you'll you'll see that with children on on uh, amusement park rides. Mm-hmm. They they're afraid to go on the roller coaster, and they get on the roller coaster. They're scared shitless. But after the roller coaster, they're what do they say? Again, let's do it again because their level of confidence. They have just become somebody different. They've just become a new level. So that confidence is absolutely crucial. So you you mess with confidence, you're messing with your power as a person. Confidence is absolutely key, and it's something that should build over time and over a lifetime. Life gets better when you get better at life, and confidence is a big part of our power as people, not just men, but men and women. So that's that's the big thing. Now, I want to talk to you about habits. This is a killer thing, because if I started smoking cigarettes again, I was a pack-a-day smoker. I, twice in my life I smoked. I started when I was 11. I had permission and I gave it up when I'm in my late teens. And then in my 20s, later in my 20s, uh, during a difficult time, I smoked again for about five years and I haven't smoked since. So if I started smoking cigarettes again, you can pretty well bet that I'd go back to a pack a day very, very quickly. If somebody is a, um, a, you know, a six beer a day drinker, or a bottle of wine per day drinker, or a two bottle of wine per day drinker, and they give it up, and they don't touch it for two years, and they start drinking again, if they've done it for long enough, chances are they'll go right back to where they were. And, and the, all the addiction treatment people say, yeah, you know, and this is why we label people addicts. This is why we say, I, I'm an addict forever, because I'll always return to it. And it's true, and it's not true. I don't like the labeling as much, but the, it's, the reason for this is because the level of learning, where you learn this kind of stuff, is in the pons and striatum, which is very at the top of the brainstem. So if you learn how to ride a bike at 10 years old and you haven't ridden one for 20 years, can you get on a bike and ride it? Sure. Yes, and that's where your learning comes from addiction. You learn, you learn to smoke, you learn to drink, you learn to, to, to take uh, mood-altering chemicals at the same level as as riding a bicycle yeah so, I agree. so when you go back it's just like riding a bike you go right back to it if you're right. a half a gram a half a gram of heroin per day kind of guy well that's you'll be back there within two weeks if you've got yeah. access to heroin I agree. you know if you're if you're a, a six or you know joe six pack and you go home every night and drink six or eight beers within a couple three weeks you'll be right back to six or eight beers if you give yourself permission to drink that way you know so and and it's because your learning is at the level the same level as riding a bike it's it's because when you think when you rode a bike 
you know, it was hard. You had to balance, you had to pedal, you had to think about falling. There was some fear involved. All of those, you know, there's, there's half a dozen, dozen different little modalities going on trying to get you to learn how to ride that bike. And I've got a five and a, and a seven-year-old and, and both of them have learned how to ride bikes in the last couple, three years here in the, in the backyard. And, and I can see, uh, you know, Charlotte, the first year we were here, it was very difficult with her. And then one day she got it. And mm-hmm. now she, she can jump on any bike and ride it. You know, she can ride no hands. Now. So, you know, and that's what happens with drugs and alcohol. And that's why you can't go back. And that's why it's for people who've got that long-term habit, right. it's better for them to never try, never test it because the learning mm-hmm. is like riding a bike. Right. I, I, you know what? I, it's so funny because we talked about this before we were going to get on this interview that we could just talk about this for a very, very long time because there's so yeah. many intricacies, so many details, so much to talk about how to understand what you need to understand about addiction and what to do. I really, I really want people to be able to have access to you because uh, you have such wisdom. You do so many wonderful things. You're so straight up and honest. That's one of the things that I respect about you. Um, And how can people get in contact with you in the event that they might want to seek out your services and counsel? Yeah, I, I, I operate out of uh, advisortomen.com is one of my websites. The other one is ckwallace.com. People can reach me through there. And uh, there's got little buttons on these sites where it says contact me. And of course, uh, <laughs> boom, I'll get an email. So it's wonderful. And um, I'm happy to work with people. And uh, so, yeah, that's one of the ways. But really, it comes down to you know, in Janice, my father was a sailor, so you'll have to, I apologize for cussing because. Oh, I, sweetie, I, do not because I cuss like a sailor all the time on my phone. Well, thank you very much. And you know what? I always tell people my excuse is my father. And, and, I, and I tell them it's a way to honor him. You know, he's 89 <laughs> years old. He's, he's got dementia. He's I don't think I honor my dad, And But anyways, but not to be crude, but the thing is that there was 40 to 200 million sperm in, in, the, in the, the, what created a person. And each of us somehow beat all of those other sperm and made it to the egg. You know, you could have been a boy, I could have been a girl. Any one of us could have had any kind of developmental delays or other characteristics. I could have been brown-eyed instead I have blue eyes, all kinds of things. But the universe, in its wisdom, in its infinite wisdom, and call it God if you like, and I, and I like that God, idea it chose the, me it chose you it chose each one of us and our prize when we won that race was a life and so now it's up to us to do something with it right. to contribute to the the the, the great master plan mm-hmm. and so when we're in a in a situation where and, and and trust me it's adaptive in a way to go and use alcohol and drugs or to smoke cigarettes except for we need to we need to become aware that what we're really searching for is our zone. What we're really searching for is our flow. When all of our, there's a confluence of our passions and our strengths and our focus on something that's productive and that gives us joy. There's enjoyment in it. And yeah. there's complexity that gets more and more and more. I mean, the first time you surf a one foot wave is one thing, but if you're used to serving five and six foot waves, a one foot wave isn't going to do it for you anymore. And that's, that's, that's what the zone does. You get good at surfing. And before you know it, you want to surf 
a little bit higher wave and a little bit more. And that's the progression of the human race. And this is where confidence comes in. So to mess with that is, is, um, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deal with the devil. It's not to use a biblical term. It's right. a deal with the devil. It's going contrary to what the universe's plan is for you. And everybody's got something. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been accorded the, the gift of life. I, I could listen to you forever. And I respect you so much. And I'm so grateful that you agreed to be a guest on my podcast. Uh, you just have such wisdom. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just so happy that I can share you with my listeners because uh, you've got a lot of important things to share. So thank you so much, Chris, for being on my show. And, and I hope y'all have enjoyed this episode of the Intuitive Therapist podcast. And uh, y'all know how to reach me, uh, Janice at JaniceRCohen.com. You've got my office number, 404-558-3971. Call for a reading. If you're interested in changing your life, reach out as well to either Chris or myself. Uh, we're both here to, to help support. And always hop over to iTunes, leave a rate and review. It would be so wonderful for me to see uh, your comments and such. I wish y'all a wonderful day, a blessed week, and always live intuitively. Thanks for listening to The Intuitive Therapist with Janice R. Cohen. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review at iTunes. 